0: Fireman too,
1: huh? Fire person. Did you see my rescue? I was disappointed in my technique. I went through the door too fast. But Chris was great. He anticipated my mistake and he compensated for it. You know, he's really got a great mind for this sort of thing. He's instinctive.
0: Please don't start with me, O'Connell.
1: Sir,
0: what? I'll admit I have some vague obligation to fulfill my position as a doctor in this town, but my scholarship didn't say anything about putting out fires. Believe me, it was the one thing that wasn't in the small print. What are you talking about? I'm not a firefighter, all right? All right.
2: Lee, have you ever read the Series of Unfortunate Events
0: books? I haven't. I'm aware of that there's also a series of movies or, or a movie with Jim Carrey, and then there's like a... Is it Neil Patrick Harris in like a Netflix series? It is. Um, No, I haven't. But I feel like you've mentioned this uh, universe to me before.
2: Yeah. Well, the reason it popped into my head right now is because in the series, and this isn't a spoiler or anything like that, there is an organization called the VFD. And it stands for a lot of things because the series is very uh, enigmatic on uh, its usage of acronyms. But the main thing that it stands for is Volunteer Fire Department. <laughs> and as a 12-year-old child, I didn't know that was a thing. Like, I thought that was, like, the mm. first time I had ever heard of a volunteer fire department uh, before. And it didn't take me until, like, years later that I realized that, like, that's an actual thing <laughs> that people
0: do. thought it was a, a fiction from the story yeah, that I thought it was from Yeah, thought it was from that book. Interesting enough, uh, my grandfather was a volunteer firefighter. In, but this was, like, in similarly a very small town. Maybe it's a small town thing. I, I don't know. I, I think you can just be a volunteer firefighter anywhere, but I don't know. But um, he was a volunteer firefighter in Cameron, Louisiana, which is, like, really close to the Gulf of Mexico, just, like, a small, very small town.
2: Oh, yeah. It's, like, definitely a small one. <laughs> uh, according to the National Fire Protection Association, 70% of firefighters mm. in the U.S. are volunteers. Hmm. I would never have guessed that number. I would have thought it was like a smaller number because it it seems like it's a very dangerous, uh, life-threatening job to have 70% of people of that profession be volunteers. is insane.
0: Well, yeah. At least we see in this episode that there is lots of training involved. So even if you aren't a firefighter by profession, if you're a volunteer, you still have to like, you know, you still got to get tested, get trained. What are we talking about, Charles? Is this the firefighter sitcom from the '90s, <laughs>
2: uh, isn't there a firefighter sitcom from the '90s? Actually, <laughs> yeah.
0: we got to figure man, this out right now. Actually, it. if not, man, we should have been alive. Or we should have been like older in the '90s and pitched this show. <laughs> we were just hey, kidding. I
2: know, I know that there's fire. Okay, so like the the one that's like most recent is Chicago Fire, but that that was like 2012. <laughs> that's somewhat recent. Um,
0: I guess fire might be like expensive and tricky to. To shoot, but I guess you always you had like TV shows back in the day with like stunt, like you know Dukes of Hazzards with like stunt drivers and stuff like that. Like that's not cheap. So stunt fire, it's not it's not a limiting factor. We could have made it. We could have made this show if we were older in the '90s.
2: <laughs> well, there is one from 1972 to 1977. It ran on NBC called Emergency, and it was about paramedics and the medical staff okay. uh, that were also paramedics and firefighters, and it gave rise to. Firefighting sitcoms—it's pretty iconic, right
0: here. All right, it was was getting started. Yeah,
2: we're 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 not we're not any of these stuff. What we are is a Northern overexposure podcast, and I'm joined here with my co-host Lee. My name is Charles, and together we like to overanalyze the 1990 CBS television sitcom series Northern Exposure.
0: That's right. My name is Lee, and I've seen this show a couple times. It's probably one of my favorite shows of all time. And Charles, this is your first time watching each episode. We're in the fifth season now, so you're pretty well acquainted with the town, with the characters. You know what's going on, but we got a little bit of a change up this season with David Chase coming on as the uh, showrunner, sort of executive producer. We're in the seventh episode now of season five, and I keep bringing up David Chase, Maybe eventually I won't mention his name, but you see it at the end of every episode now, so it's hard to ignore. But yeah, Charles, can I just jump right in here with the the credits? Yeah, hit us with those credits. All right, so uh, as I said, the seventh episode of season five, the title of the episode, Rosebud. It was directed by Michael Fresco, who uh, most recently directed The Mystery of the Old Curio Shop, which was... I want to say like the second, yeah, second episode of season five. Uh, Before that, he directed Dateline Sicily, Thanksgiving, and the season four finale, Old Tree. This episode was written by Barbara Hall. This is her first time as a writer for Northern Exposure, though we've been seeing her name in the credits as like a producer, like maybe consulting producer or executive producer. I I can't remember. She is a producer on the show. And I think she's going to write a few more episodes too uh, throughout the series, But, finally, the air date of this episode is November 8th,
2: 1993. Oh, okay. I feel like this episode has a really nice relationship between the writer and the director. Because there's lots of subtext in the script that is, in my mind, no doubt, uh, picked up upon by the director. And he's able to implement those techniques, at least from what I'm guessing is happening here. Okay. But, yeah, I think that overall, it's a pretty great episode, um, I yeah. think I would enjoyed it. We were on a, I want to say like a two-episode stinker, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. they, they weren't going so so great, but yeah, it's a for little, this one in particular.
0: little uptick, I think. Uh, a welcome change of pace from those past two episodes.
2: Can I just say that I, I really like it whenever a producer starts getting writing credits, because it's probably something they set out initially to do, and then... Once they got their foot through the door, they're able to do the thing that they came here to do in the first place, and are probably probably really happy that uh, this came to fruition. I know that this particular individual I just got on board on season five, but still, uh, I think she's tapped into what makes Northern Exposure, Northern Exposure.
0: Yeah, whatever it is, I think she's got the right vibe, because I, as we say, I think we enjoy this episode more than the last couple, but... Yeah, we've already seen there's sort of like this volunteer firefighter plot, which is interesting. We get to see sort of like how fires are put out in the town of Sicily. Uh, But there's also something else going on uh, pretty big, I think is maybe more of the main focus of the episode and maybe perhaps where the title, uh, where the episode draws its title from. I don't know. I'm not going to say we're going to go down that plot line first, but let's just set up the very first scene of the episode which is uh, a, a huge wide shot of sort of like Main Street, Sicily. And Maurice is talking with Ed. And actually, it's pretty interesting. I noticed I've never seen this street sign before, but there's a, you know, there's a big street sign that's sort of in the middle of the frame uh, We're sort of a higher angle overlooking sort of the intersection uh, wide shot of sort of, as I said, sort of like the Main Street that we normally see with I want to say K-Bear is there. Is that, uh, I need to look at this image real fast.
2: You're predominantly seeing the brick.
0: The brick. It's the brick is there. That's what's like the uh, identifying landmark. But anyway, the street sign that I'm talking about, Cemetery Street. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Cemetery Street. Uh, I mean, in Northern Exposure. I don't. I didn't know that's what that street was called.
2: Yeah, I didn't know either. That caught my eye right there. But like you're saying, it starts off with this great wide shot, and it just tracks them as they go across the street, and they're walking all the way over to presumably it's K Bear, right?
0: All right, I've got it pulled up. Let's check it out. Yeah, yes, that is K Bear. Yeah, because I I recognize uh, Maurice's office, the space shuttle uh, poster. Like they go inside, and the camera, you know, continues. Yeah, like the scene continues. I was making
2: sure. Yeah, I was making sure that like, Maurice's office was in uh was in K Bear, <laughs> but it's a great tracking shot. Very, what is it? What is a word meaning you're capable at directing, yeah. or like cinematic? What is there A word for Very that? Very
0: competent direction, I guess. Or
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, definitely that. It's a neat little trick that we're not seeing often in Northern Exposure.
0: Well, so what you're talking about, right? Let me just make sure. We keep <laughs> we're like constantly referencing this clip, but it is a really cool shot. But yeah, the camera continues. They go. They walk inside of K Bear. And I don't think there's a cut unless it's hidden. Let me see. Not a hidden cut, right? Yeah, yeah. It's they just shot. go straight into like past the window. I wonder if like I wonder how they did that. Maybe they just are they shooting through the glass of K Bear, or are they like did they remove some glass? Did they open a I'm window? How removed. did they do this?
2: That was like the the one that popped into my mind. I was like, uh, they probably just removed like the back end of the set. So that they can just carefully move right there. I think that's super cool how uh, film sets do that.
0: Oh, yeah. You're saying it's like a a flyaway wall or something? Very cool.
2: But what they're talking about in this scene is about a film festival. And the reason they're having a film festival is because Maurice wants to set up like this swanky new place, like a restaurant where you can get like valet service and there's like a beauty parlor in it. It's less of a restaurant and more of like a... uh, It's like a hotel. sounds, Sounds...
0: he like, yeah, he it wants some, it, to, it be like to be bigger than the Sourdough Inn, but like a hotel right. of sorts.
2: Yeah, it's just kind of like a whole lot of things in there. And he needs to attract attention so he can get investors to come uh, put their money into it, which is why he's enlisting Ed to go do a Sicily film festival.
0: Do you remember, I'm trying to look this up now, the episode of Nathan For You... Where he makes his own film festival. I don't think I've seen that one. I can't remember why he does it. That's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> but it's one of his like schemes. After being rejected by film festivals, Nathan creates his own. I I guess that's just why he does it. Because you know, so, most of the time that show is about him coming up with clever ideas to like help struggling businesses. But every once in a while, it's just like a personal thing. Like there's one of the season finales. He's like trying to like uh sort of Houdini magic trick himself. Like there's no business that he's helping. He's just trying to do this like magic trick on live camera. So maybe this was just his own personal thing. He's been rejected by so many film festivals that he just creates his own. (laughs) And it's funny because in the episode, like he screens his film and then one other film just to like call it a film festival. And then he gives all the awards (laughs) to his film (laughs)
2: <laughs> this is uh, for those of you who have never seen Nathan for you or yeah. are, are not familiar with this uh, this show. It, it's it's not satire. It's just like this guy plays it super straight, but it's obviously meant to be very funny. He's the same guy who created uh dumb Starbucks, which is yeah. just it's the same exact thing as Starbucks, except every item is called dumb, and he's able to pull this off because of a uh, fair use. Yeah, so it's like dumb a dumb frappuccino.
0: Yeah, fair use parody law or whatever. Dumb frappuccino, dumb. Cappuccino. It's the exact same restaurant. Just the menu is says "dumb" in front of everything.
2: But anyway, Maurice wants to have a film festival. He wants it to rival uh, Sundance. Well, at least Ed wants it to rival Sundance. He himself is not super familiar with that film festival.
0: Yeah, they they drop a couple film festival names in this scene. Uh, I think Telluride might be first. Sarasota Film Festival in Florida. Which I've actually never heard of, uh, but that kind of makes sense because it's it ended in '96, so <laughs> I don't know if it was a very famous one at the time or what the deal was. Maybe it was bigger back then, but it's it's no you know might be hard pressed to find someone who's heard of the Sarasota Film Festival.
2: Do you know the name, the original name of uh, Sundance Festival? Mm. It used to be called the Utah Film Festival when mm. it started in 1978. But in 1984, they changed it to Sundance after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid.
0: Hmm. Is Robert Redford associated or like he is? Okay, as I was say, I know he I know he like founded a film fest or something like that. He might have a couple, but very cool.
2: So right before we get off this scene, this one little thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, whenever Maurice designates Ed as the point man for this film festival, he lifts up the windows. Which is like symbolically visualizing Ed's opportunities arriving. Mm. I think that there's lots of shots and references to light in this episode. I'm gonna be pointing them out as we go on. But anyway, uh what do we uh what, what plot lines do we have?
0: So we've obviously got this uh, brewing Sicily Film Festival that's gonna be you know playing throughout this episode, the construction or sort of the organization of this film festival. But also, as we mentioned up front with the soundbite, we've got Joel and the Volunteer Fire Department. So, Charles, which one should we tackle first?
2: Let's go with Joel and the Volunteer Fire Department right here. Cool. So it's gonna start with Joel buying some stuff at Ruth Ann's store. And Ruth Ann is actually the head of the VFD. And what she's doing here is that she's trying to recruit Joel into this volunteer fire department because, you know. He's young. He's capable. (laughs) She thinks that he would be able to contribute to the town in this manner. But Joe declines. He he hears about, like, the 50 hours of training, the weekend drills. But more than that, it just seems like he just values uh, himself more than this volunteer department. So he declines.
0: In a way, you're saying, like, he's more concerned for his safety than to... It sounds very selfish, but he's concerned about his safety and doesn't want to put himself at risk to help the community, which is fine. You know, it's a volunteer. You don't have to be a firefighter, but uh, maybe there is a bit of selfishness at work here. Well, he does say, uh, you know, volunteer firefighting, quote, shows a wonderful dedication to the community, dot, dot, dot. And then he says to Ruthann, I don't think that's me. (laughs) Like, I don't (laughs) wanna lie to you, Ruthann. I have absolutely no interest in being a fireman. So he, you know, uh, in no uncertain terms, makes it clear that uh, it's just not for him. He's not gonna do this. And before we move on from this scene, I just wanted to point out, as Joel is shopping in Ruthann's store, you could see behind him the uh, movie rental section. I think we've asked about this before. We've talked about it on the podcast. Like how much does it cost? Are they buying these movies, renting them? There's a sign that says 15 cents a day. 15 cents to rent a movie. Um, I guess like, you know, usually when you go back in the day when you used to rent movies from the video store, you would get it for like a week. So still that's, you know, it's like a dollar and some change. That's pretty great. Uh, Isn't that too much? For a week of for a week rental back in the oh, wait, day. Oh wait wait wait. Sorry,
2: yeah. sorry sorry. A week a week. Yeah. I thought I misheard. We're, I thought it was yeah, daily. It's, it's kind of like, like a Redbox like,
0: deal, yeah. Redbox yeah, would be like a dollar, but deal. but for, for a week, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Uh, we also see this is like after the opening title music and the moose and stuff. So we see the guest stars. We got Leonard returning. Graham Greene is back in this episode, and. Peter Bogdanovich is in this episode? I, okay, we, we, we're not going to get to his storyline until later. So we can geek out then. But I'm just pretty excited about that um, that guest star title.
2: Well, before we get to uh, Mr. Peter right there, we're going to get to the next scene with Joe and the VFD. Yes. Which is where they're running like a simulation right here. There's like a house on pretend fire ruth ann's dare maggie's there, chris is there those two are partnered together in order to go save some um save some people from the fire right there i always thought it would be hilarious just like a like as a comedy uh joke is if like they busted down the door with that x and then like the people trapped inside are like that door wasn't locked
0: like you didn't have to destroy our door <laughs> <laughs> why did you break our door open <laughs>
2: <laughs> but what's happening here is that they're doing a fantastic job of saving these individuals and one of the key things is that joel is next to like children mm-hmm. and he kind of looks at them there's like a shot of him looking down the line at these children kind of inferring to be like e- what you know why why aren't you out there doing this yeah there's you're, a, the you're a grown man k-
0: the kid looks up to him more than once and they kind of exchange glances uh exactly it's like what are you doing like because the only people who are watching this demonstration are kids. Like, all the grown-ups are part of the demonstration. So why is he on the sidelines? Uh, it's a cool, you know, it's a cool little drill whenever Maggie and um, Chris bust into that building. It's like a really cool steady cam that rushes in after them and follows them out. I also would like to include Hauling is there, I think, in some sort of, like, group huddle. And Ruthann is... Um, <laughs> I wrote down in my notes, Ruthanne is a firefighter, dear God, she's gonna die she's so <laughs> Not only is she a firefighter, she's the chief, the fire chief, but I guess maybe like that position requires some you know wisdom and experience, and she's got that for sure, but i I wouldn't want to see her if my house was on fire, I wouldn't want her to come with like a hose you know we gotta we need Maggie and Chris for this
2: I don't think uh I don't know the chief is really out there in the field right. there, right? Like, they're not the ones busting out that door. That's the exactly. uh, firefighters.
0: Yeah. So this is also what goes into our soundbite, this scene. You know, Joel walks away from the demonstration and uh, Maggie is just finishing the drill. And uh, we get our opening soundbite. And Joel, exasperated at the end of that bite, is just, you know, again, say, saying out loud, I'm, I'm not a firefighter. And walks away
2: right which brings us to the next scene which is him back at his office with marilyn and marilyn's reading up on a cpr guideline book she's trying to learn (laughs) how to do the heimlich because it's required in order to be a firefighter and joel replies back saying like "Uh, it's really good man you'd be surprised how many health professionals couldn't heimlich their way out of a paper bag which is again subtext for you know going above and beyond your station of duty and things like that.
0: Mm, how do you mean? You just mean like most doctors don't go above and beyond or what? No, not
2: necessarily in that manner. Just like what, what Joel is saying here is that like y- there, there's something that you can do more than just your, your status quo, hmm. which is like doing the Heimlich. That's not like something that's like required of the doctor. It's just nice that the doctor can do that. Just like it's it would be nice if Joel could be a volunteer fireman, even though he's not required to do that.
0: hmm Real fast, I kind of feel like the you know we know the trajectory of this storyline and sort of the theme of this storyline. It's about Joel, you know, you know maybe putting himself out there for the town and and protecting them and and like is he selfish? Is he more part of the community? But do you do you feel like Joel uh, is a bad bad person for not joining the volunteer fire squad or? No, I absolutely don't think he's a bad person.
2: Yeah. I, I think in my honest opinion even without the argument that he brings to the table, which is that he is the sole doctor, and if you (laughs) lose that doctor, you're going to be in much worse shape than just not having Joel on the um, fire department team. Yeah. I think that he brings a reasonable argument, but even before that, I think that, like, if you don't want to do it, you shouldn't have to do it. Yeah. I think that, you know, maybe he deems something within himself to be like, I think I would be more of a hassle with me there than, like a pro like maybe he knows deep down like maybe he'd panic on the spot Mm. maybe there's something in which he deems unworthy within himself to be a firefighter which might be reasonable things because like at like that stage of uh heightened panic you want people that are like really straightforward and aren't going to worry and they're going to charge right into the fire you can't be getting a person that's going to panic and then suddenly you got to deal with the fire and this individual so i think that like if for any reason you don't want to be a volunteer fireman then, uh, you know, more power to you. Yeah. What what about you, Lee?
0: Yeah, there's no imperative for Joel. He doesn't have to become a firefighter, which perhaps is why in the end, it's even better that he does like sort of, we're already kind of spoiling it towards the end of this plot line, but you've, if you're listening, you've probably watched this episode already, but um, you know, it's even more powerful in the end that he does put himself out there because he has no obligation to do so. And maybe it's more, maybe it comes from a more um, selfless place if he, you know, does put himself out there and try the drills and try to, you know, become a volunteer firefighter. Uh, we're, again, we're definitely jumping ahead. So I just wanted to make sure, or I just wanted to stop momentarily and just discuss, because it seems like we're, we're probably going to be pointing out how uh, quote-unquote selfish Joel is acting throughout this plot line, just because that's sort of like what the story is maybe trying to show, because in the end, he has like sort of a change. But I just wanted to point out that I don't I don't think he's like being selfish, and I, I don't think you do either. Um, but there's, I guess there's a difference of him sticking his neck out and him just uh, minding his own business, I guess.
2: Right. And you know, as we talk about this, Joel is also having similar conversations with Marilyn about this, you mm-hmm. know, saying that he's the town doctor, he shouldn't be putting himself yeah. in danger. And I find this actually quite rude. This is like maybe the only time in which I found Marilyn rude. She, she, she? cuts him off and says like, I'm trying to study here. And Who? I don't know. I feel like Joel's in an exasperated position and he wants to talk to an individual to vent out his problems, which I find valid. And Marilyn kind of just shuts him off. You know, sometimes you, I understand like she works for Joel and maybe this is like a daily occurrence (laughs) in which Joel complains about everything. But we as an audience member could only see Joel at these moments of time. And at this moment of time, I felt that uh, he he was quite validated in what he was complaining about.
0: Yeah. I missed that in my notes. But yeah, that is pretty messed up if uh, he's just there to try to like lean on Marilyn and like really have like a heart to heart with her about this. You know, He he obviously has a lot of uh, nervousness and anxiety and, and troubled feelings with becoming a volunteer firefighter. He just wants to talk to her about it and she kind of like cuts him off there. I think right before this, we get a, a radio broadcast from Chris about, you know, signing up for drills or yada yada for the volunteer fire department. He mentions that Sicily has just uh, gotten a Jaws of Life machine. Which is cool. I know there's an episode that we just covered called Jaws of Life.
2: It's also really interesting in that address. He starts off by saying, Up and Adam Sicilians. This is Chris in the morning saying, Don't squander your daylight because mm. the shadows are creeping across the seal just a little bit sooner than they used to. Again, bringing the imagery of light right into the conversation.
0: All right. All right. Yeah, I'm liking these these light motifs so far. Very good. Very good. The next portion of this firefighter storyline. Let's see. Oh, wow. Yeah. Does it really just go to this? Is the yeah, next scene? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what is, how does this happen? Joel's just driving, right? He's driving his truck, and it catches on fire. Like the engine?
2: Yeah. Uh, from the sound effects of it, it sounded like he hit something, but hmm. I could be uh, misremembering right here. But it looks like if it, that wasn't the case, his truck just spontaneously combusted, and uh, it starts getting on fire. He takes off his jacket, his shirt, tries to uh, put out the fire, but it's to no avail. And that's when he gets on the telephone, and uh, they patch him through to Ruth Ann, who is out on a another rescue mission. She's trying to she's trying to take care of this goat that has somehow found itself on like a pallet of grass and it's like lifted in the air. It's a very strange operation for a goat to be in. Yeah. I don't know how it found itself in this situation, but she's trying to take care of this and she deems Joel's problems as a minor in this goat's problem as major.
0: Yeah, the goat is on this pallet lifted by some sort of like pulley outside of a barn. Like I've seen this in movies and TV and video games. I guess they're like lifting hey, I don't know what it is. Like they're lifting stuff up into the top part of the barn through a pulley. The goat is on that pulley. Why can't they just lower the pulley? I'm trying to remember like, cause aren't there like fire, I don't know how, the, I'm not a fireman, so I don't know how this all works. We, I think they just don't want the goat to like jump off or fall off and uh, and injure itself or end its life. We learn later that this is like the only milk producing goat that this, uh, the, the owner of this goat, like it's the only milk-producing goat that they have, so it's a big part of their business, um, and it's important. I want to point out that Ruthann, when she's on the phone with, um, uh, she's not like talking directly to Joel. She's tra- she's like being patched through someone at the fire department, maybe uh, the firehouse, perhaps, and she asks the other firemen on the line, "Are there any lives or structures at risk?" And the other fireman says, it doesn't sound like it, but here's the deal. This, like a truck, a car catching on fire. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I think if a vehicle's on fire, it's probably going to explode, especially if the fire reaches like the gas tank. Uh, that's an explosion. And um, I don't know if a vehicle counts as life or structure, but that's still like a large piece of property. And also the the truck is parked very close to, I want to say Joel's office, Like that's Mm -hmm. that's his own, that's the doctor's office. There's plenty of buildings there. You have gotta be some debris flying. There's gotta be some damage. It sounds, and then there's like a a crowd of people gathered watching this this all go down. It seems very dangerous. I mean, no offense to this goat's life, but I mean, who knows if Ruthann and the fire truck would even make it to Joel in time? Cause it seems like only a course of like a, a minute or less before his truck explodes. Spoiler alert. It explodes, but um, but yeah, it's pretty. I don't know. It's pretty unfortunate.
2: Yeah, I, I think what they were trying to get out of the scene was that um, Maurice comes and says, "Like, Joe, it's just a truck. It's just like an item." And I think they're trying to do a, a juxtaposition between, like, saving uh, a, a quote-unquote living being against a uh, material possession, and kind of playing that into Joel's personality to be like he cares more about uh, materialism and his well-being than the, the plight of others.
0: Yeah. He also has like a, um, a hand stitched Charvet shirt, brand new. It's like in the truck. I guess he was driving with it and, uh, he didn't, he was, he like ran in to try to grab the shirt and Maurice had to pull him out. So yeah, that's another, uh, example of materialism, I guess. Um, (laughs) But the truck explodes. It's crazy. I was like, really, I was actually really angry when I saw that. It's like, what the hell, Ruth Ann? This is dangerous. This truck is going to explode. It does explode. um But actually, I went back and rewatched the scene just to see the explosion again, to see how they shot it and everything. And it's actually pretty funny. I think the scene is actually really funny on a second watch.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think this is Joel's uh, exasperated behavior that makes it really funny right there. Yeah. Well, we can see that he brings up his concerns with Ruth Ann and her store in the next scene involving them. And Joel's got like a bill for her to pay, including with the shirt. And he's saying, like, well, this is like the amount that you owe me. And Ruth Ann's saying, like, oh, that's nonsense. We don't deal with property loss. And I, I think she's correct in that because I, I think I remember reading something about how police officers aren't responsible for the damages that they do whenever they're like scoping out a place or trying to capture a subject. Um, mm. I think it was like one very horrifying one where it was like they got to the wrong house. Like they thought that like this house is where this um, wanted fugitive was. And they like blew up like half the house or something, like some oh insane <laughs> thing. And they brought it to court, like the person who owned the house. He was like, you blew up like half my house. And the judge was like sympathetic, but also said like, uh, yeah, like they're not, they're not bound by that type of thing like the property loss you're just gonna have to like take it apparently i'm like what like i think that's nonsense but i don't know i think i think like obviously they must have their some sort of reasons like maybe they're afraid they can be abused maybe they don't want this to be on the government's dime they don't want police officers to be thinking about property loss when they're trying to save an individual because you know at the end of the day like the individual's worth more than the person but like uh still i i feel kind of weird
0: yeah uh well I mean, uh, Joel. Not only is he like you know, he wants he wants Ruthann to cut him a check for his losses, and Ruthann rightfully is like, call up the New York Fire Department and ask them how many checks they've written for losses and damages and things like that, loss of property. But something we didn't touch on is that Joel thinks that he's being specifically targeted by Ruthann for not uh, volunteering himself. Uh, he feels that Ruthann after Joel turned her down, Ruthann has, like, decided to withhold these firefighter services from Joel because he didn't want to sign up. Of course, like, Ruthann's like, oh, whatever, like, go take a pill or something, I think she says, and she just sort of, like, brushes him off, but he's very livid, I, I would say.
2: Yeah, I-, I think that that's a reasonable assumption to make, and I think that's also one of the things of, like, why firefighters are a government institution
0: mm-hmm. is because
2: you don't want there to be a situation in which like someone's house is on fire and they're like "Oh, well, you didn't pay for the service you're just gonna have to handle that well that brings us to the next scene involving joel which is where he's outside and maggie joins him she's got a laundry basket again <laughs> it's like a very often she has a laundry basket this season <laughs>
0: yeah. and she's telling him like ah i feel sorry for you joel i'm sorry Wait, and joel doesn't sorry third episode in a row right there's the... not in a row not in a row not in a row okay.
2: Yeah, but like very. i we're only on episode seven, so at least three out of seven is still a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, Maggie is talking to Joel, and she's saying like, "Ah, oh, yeah, like I'm sorry this happened to you." And Joel's saying like, "You know what? No, you know what? I don't. I don't trust any of you guys. It's y'all's fault that you know this is happening to me." And Maggie reveals to Joel that like, "Look, we weren't even counting on you in the first place because." When you're a VFD, when you're a volunteer fire department member, you have like a buddy system and you have to rely on your buddy in order to get you through that burning house. And Joel, being who you are, none of us really want to be your buddy.
0: Yeah, I've got a soundbite. I mean, let me play this.
1: Eventually, everybody's name comes up, Flashman. And you know, being who you are, nobody really ever expected you to join.
0: What is that supposed to mean?
1: The department works on a buddy system, all right? And frankly...
0: Oh, what, I'm not a buddy?
1: You're the one who's made it clear from day one how you felt about being here. You know, Fleshman, you're not a team player.
0: I'm a private person. New Yorkers are like that. It comes from living in an overpopulated, crime-infested island. We like our space. Does that mean I deserve to burn to death? No. So what are you saying? How can you make a blanket implication like that? I'm not a buddy and just leave it there.
1: Now, look. You go into a room that's filled with smoke. It's so thick, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. You're depending on your partner. You're trusting that person with your life.
0: Are you saying that you wouldn't go into a burning building with me?
1: What the hell is that supposed to mean?
0: Fleischman. Wait, how am I supposed to interpret that? I'm sorry, okay. Seems like Maggie kind of dropped the ball there. Like Joel was very hurt. And it's obvious that Maggie doesn't want to hurt his feelings. But in the end, she's just like, "I'm sorry," and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what
2: what's kind of strange about this is that this is the penultimate scene, because uh, the next scene that we're gonna see of them is actually the final scene for Joel's plot line, which is where he's traversing this ladder up this water tower. Uh, lots of like X's that are like dominating in the foreground that we're seeing while he's climbing up this ladder and he gets to the top and he's looking down below and they've got this like, um,
0: trampoline, well, tra- trampoline. is it a, is there a more technical term than that? Um, well just imagine a trampoline, but a bunch of people are holding it instead of springs. So it's like, it's like a trust yeah. fall exercise,
2: right? one of those and they're like trust us joel take a deep breath and joel kind of wavers a little bit as you naturally would and and then he takes the leap of faith he leaps from the water tower to go down and presumably he's caught we're we're not actually shown the shot of him being (laughs) caught in this
0: uh this trampoline come back to the start of (laughs) next episode and there's a funeral for joel (laughs) (laughs) no yeah it's a it's understood it's a nice edit like it's a nice cut because they you know you don't see the, he's falling through the air you don't see the trampoline because it's below the frame and it like cuts you know before he falls uh out of the frame uh but they're gonna is
2: that is that like hey i I have a question for you on this (laughs) then do you think it's better that he didn't show it for just like a uh you know, like, the obvious uh, reference to being, like, it's a leap of faith. You don't need to know how it ends up because you just trust that they caught him.
0: Yeah. Or do
2: okay. you think it would have been better just to, like, see the cut of him being caught? Like, caught? Because they must have got that on camera.
0: Well, I was going to say, no, I like I like what you said first. It's like it's a leap of faith. It doesn't matter, you know, the, the fact that he's leaping is uh, is that's the, uh, the climax, you know? Yeah, they're going to catch him or they won't catch him. It's that he trusts them that they'll catch him. Uh, but, you know, they probably, as you said, they probably shot it to where you can see him falling on the trampoline. And also, if I had to guess, it probably just, one, like, maybe it just didn't look that cool. And two, even if it did look cool, maybe it's just, like, not a strong shot to end on. You know, it's stronger to end on, the sh- the way we just described it, where you don't see, mm. the, see him falling there. But, uh, well, I wrote down... Um, Yeah, this is a great completion of his arc here for this storyline. He's demonstrating his trust finally for the townsfolk and like putting himself out, uh, putting his his life in danger for his friends and his like peers and the people he lives with. But then I also wrote like, maybe now they can finally trust him. Like what's, why is everyone giving him so much crap and like not, (laughs) he's not a buddy to people. He has to like jump off of a water tower for you to trust him. Um, sorry. I'm just like, I do feel bad for Joel. Any situation where Joel versus the townsfolk, I feel like as the series goes on, when it's, when when the series began, it's funny to see him struggle and squirm and not be used to this, um, this style of living as the series goes on. It just feels like these people are being mean to him for no reason. Like this is Joel Fleischman. You've grown to Grown to know him and love him. Of course, he's like prickly and uh, abrasive at times. But once you've seen four seasons worth of Joel, you understand that he's got – there's a side of him that's a really good person.
2: Right. Like there's a – I think what they're trying to make an argument for is that like they want you to go above and beyond your occupational duties mm. they want him to take a foothold into the responsibilities of the town's folk uh, that's what they want of them but also i'm like i totally get where you're coming from lee and i'm probably more in your camp <laughs> in that like it, of the four seasons plus the seven episodes of which we've seen in season five i have never seen joel be a bad doctor I've never seen him break pa- patient confidentiality. I've never seen him hold a grudge and be like, I'm not treating this individual. Like, I've never seen him abandon his medical duties. Well, there's um,
0: there's one episode where he, like, boycotted because, but that was specifically because the state of Alaska didn't give him a vacation, which I think is a, is a you know, it's like every worker deserves that's against, a against vac- yeah, yeah,
2: that's against the system. That's <laughs> yeah. not against, like, an individual townsfolk. And right. I think that, like, I, I think it's neat that we've never seen Joel waver in that. I think that brings character to him. I think that's awesome. Yeah, that he's he's done all that. And yeah, these townsfolk are still questioning him. i <laughs> like, whether he's a good townsfolk. I was Like, what do you mean, man? I've seen you guys like not do your jobs plenty of times in Northern Exposure. Like, I've seen Maggie be like, I'm not doing that. Run! I'm not gonna deliver this mail. I'm like, I just don't want to go. Like, I've seen Holly in closed shop. I've seen Maurice like negligently fire people for like <laughs> frivolous reasons.
0: Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, at the very least, it's a good completion of this idea, as you're saying, uh, going above and beyond. Like it, it's playing on an idea. Maybe it's not gelling completely with the characters as we know them, but uh, it's a good message. <laughs> I'll give it that. Um, well, let's dial it back to the beginning now. So we hinted at a Sicily film festival, and Peter Bogdanovich coming to town. Uh, the a- the actor that, well, you know, he's a director, but Peter Bogdanovich credited as a guest-starring actor. Though, spoiler alert, he plays himself. So Peter Bogdanovich, the real, real-life film director, is coming to Sicily. Uh, though I guess we're going to dial it back to the beginning. So we talked about Maurice and Ed walking about... Uh, Main Street Sicily walking into K-Bear talking about the prospect of a film fest. Uh, But what's the scene that follows that in this storyline?
2: Well, it's a little bit tricky because there is a third plot line. It's the one with Leonard trying to learn more about storytelling. But the problem is is that his resolution almost happens at the same time as Ed's resolution. Ed gets one more scene to finally resolve his plot line. But they're very closely interweaved at some points. Right here. So inevitably, we're going to be stepping on one of their territories uh, once we pick one of the two. But which one do you want to go into? Do you want to get into Leonard and learning more about fables and myths? Or do you want to talk about Ed in
0: the film festival? I would say let's just go in chronological order, I think. Let's let's try that.
2: Yeah, let's try that. Yeah. So if we're going by chronological order then, we're going to be seeing Leonard at the brick. And we see him trying to research more about, quote-unquote, white culture uh i don't like they definitely would not have used that phrasing in their 2021 <laughs> there's nothing inherently wrong what's happening in the scene it's just the way he's phrasing it um he's bringing up a very interesting um situation that's happening here because he's saying that like in his culture they find that storytelling is very enriching and is a way to guide them toward a better tomorrow they're things in which there's lessons and morals found within, and they can apply that to their own lives. And, um, you know, frequently the theme is like some sort of act of faith or perseverance, and they use that to build upon in their lives. And he's trying to see if there's like a similar parallel in people who are white.
0: Yeah, he wants to find parallels in the white culture and stories from the white culture that parallel his culture, expressions of the collective unconscious he says, to to learn about white culture, he thinks that stories is going to tell him the most that he could know. And did you mention healing stories? That's, a, that's something he points out in this scene as well. Um, so that's something he's looking for in the white culture. Uh, Holling talks briefly about Paul Bunyan and Shelley has a strange line. She says, I thought that was Dinty Moore. And everyone like pauses and just like looks at her. Dinty Moore, I'm sure you've seen on like the, it's like a canned food, like beef stew, I guess. Mm-hmm. No idea why uh, Shelley would think Dinty Moore was Paul Bunyan. Maybe, was there ever a mascot for Dinty Moore? I, sh- I know Ugh. for sure like there's not any more, but maybe back in the day. Okay. You know what? Yeah, there there really was. There, I guessed right. He kind of looks like Paul Bunyan, the Dinty Moore mascot. Well, in the cartoons, he has like blonde hair, but I see like a big uh, lumberjack. With the brown yeah. beard.
2: Even in the cartoon. He's like it's like towering over this guy. He's not like just double; He's like triple, even quadruple the
0: size of this individual right here. So, okay, I see where Shelley's coming from. But, it, you know, obviously it's just like a weird thing to say. So Holling's talking about Paul Bunyan. And uh, Leonard is like, so has this story influenced your life? How does it influence your daily activities? And Holling's like, I mean, I've gone years without even thinking about Paul Bunyan. Like, I, this isn't really part of my life. You're just asking about some some myths. So this is what I got.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's gonna set him off on that search for uh, the answer for him. Yeah. But the next scene that's gonna happen is going to be happening at Maurice's place. Ooh. It's nighttime. He's having
0: dinner. Before he's in
2: his dinner's robes.
0: Before we get there, because it's it's about to it's about to get stirred up a little bit, but uh we actually skipped a scene when Leonard first arrives in town. Ed is like walking down the street with a huge book and he walks alongside Leonard and he's got this book. He's like, he says he's like trying to come up with ideas for the the um, centerpiece or the theme of the film festival. And he's got this book, 5001 Nights at the Movies, A Guide from A to Z. It's a collection of Pauline Kael's reviews of movies. She was like a famous film critic. Um, apparently it spans like from the silent era all the way to the early 1980s. I was looking into this and, uh, Graham mentions that he busts heads with Kale over Bernardo Bertolucci. I was trying to, I'm not very familiar with Pauline Kale's reviews, but I did sort of dig into it a little bit. And it turns out that one of her more famous reviews is, uh, of the movie, The Last Tango in Paris which is a Bernardo Bertolucci film. So maybe um, Leonard disagrees with her there. That must be what he's talking about. You'll have to read that review to really, I guess, see what Leonard's idea is, perhaps opposite of Pauline's. But um, regardless, we get a little bit of setup. Ed is like working on the film fest, but also it's important that he's like nervous to see Leonard, Um, which, you know, because... Earlier on in the season, Leonard told Ed that he's got this calling to be a shaman. And Ed is, uh, right now, shamanism is like the furthest thing from his mind. He's focused on film and this film festival. And now Leonard kind of like re-enters his life today. So he's got this obligation to shamanism, to f- being a filmmaker. This is just the beginning of this plot line. Um, but okay, Ed has been stirring some ideas around in his head. And now we're coming to this scene. I Sorry, I cut you off. but No, no, no. no. I actually,
2: Maurice's. this is what happens when you uh, <laughs> don't write your notes in chronological fashion. Because <laughs> I thought that happened after this scene. Oh, That is why I forgot about it. Uh, there is something very really interesting about this scene, though, is because when they're talking, it's a um, walk and talk right here. They're both moving in one direction. The camera's following with them. Uh, whenever they get to the conversation about being a shaman, Ed actually blocks... Into the shadows.
0: Mm. So they're
2: walking in daylight and then he goes around Leonard and they're both cast in shadows as they talk about shamanism, wow. which is indicating that this is not something that he wants to do. So I thought that was very clever of them.
0: Yeah, they're like, I'm watching the scene again. They're like, Do they turn a corner? I'm trying to see how they, uh, yeah, they kind of turn corner. They change their blocking and they're in the shadow of, a, uh, of the brick, perhaps.
2: Okay. Snap back to what I was just talking to, which is nighttime. Maurice is in his pajama robes. He's having dinner, (laughs) and Ed comes in, and now he has the idea of a theme for the whole film festival, Orson Welles.
0: Yes. Actually, um, Maurice is, I think, sleeping, because at the end of this scene, he's like, oh, one last thing, Ed, like when Ed's about to leave buy a watch because he's like, it's like in the middle of the (laughs) night and Ed, but it's because Ed is struck with this inspiration, Orson Welles, the theme of the film fest. Maurice says, Orson Welles, that's the big fat fella that did all those sherry wine commercials. Um, Are you aware of this, Charles? Have you seen these wine commercials? I I
2: wasn't, but I was like, that totally sounds like something you do when you're like 69 years old or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's very washed out, but- What's so memorable about these commercials is he's like flat out drunk filming. Like there's outtakes. You can go, you can YouTube this. It's actually really funny. He's This is like late era Orson Welles, who's super round and super fat and just like <laughs> slurring his lines for this sh- Sherry commercial. Um But yeah, Citizen Kane. What you know? Perhaps the best movie of all time. Have you seen?
2: I'm presumably you've seen Citizen Kane, right? I feel
0: like we maybe would have watched that together, but maybe not. Um, No,
2: we watched a movie about them making the movie. No, yeah, we've seen.
0: uh, Well, it's about Orson. So we've seen me and Orson Welles, starring Zac Efron, directed by Richard Linkletter. It's about like. Orson Welles' production of Julius Caesar, really fun movie. Claire Danes, Ugh.
2: yeah, definitely, definitely a fun movie. I
0: don't, dude. I was actually,
2: I don't think, Wait, I'm sorry.
0: Oh no, I was just gonna say. Um, I had texted you recently, actually last night, because I, because after I watched this episode, it's all Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. I was like, all right, it's finally time for me to watch Mank. So I got manked with. Uh, it was me and my cat sitting on the couch watching uh watching mank and uh got a lot of opinions about that movie i enjoyed it but um we maybe we'll get to it later or something that could be a a later discussion i i also was cutting we were we're cutting each other off so i'm sure you have something interesting to say
2: (laughs) uh i was gonna say that i've never seen uh citizen Kane. whoa what (laughs) hang on this is even more better because it's not even like the same thing. But like, I was just looking through Orson Welles' filmography. One of his last things that he did, and it was released after his death, is that he was in the Transformers movie, like the 1986 yeah. animated one. He voiced Unicron. Yeah, who I believe. What does that guy transform into?
0: Oh, I don't know. I actually, I haven't seen that.
2: Turns into a planet.
0: What? <laughs> There's been a, a, a few like posthumous releases of his movies like most recently i think netflix acquired the other side of the wind which is uh i thought it was a fantastic movie but it was like it's an unfinished film that they like kind of like finished um and it, it forms a it forms a complete movie if you watch it on netflix it's good peter bogdanovich actually is an actor in that movie um oh. very close like very kind of large role in that movie he really was, like, a, a close friend of Orson Welles, as we hear in this episode.
2: Yeah, but I, I still don't, that doesn't hold candle. Like, can you imagine, like, <laughs> do you think he imagined his life to be, like, one of my last work is going to be on the Transformers, the movie? <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> God, yeah. Well, How did they even get him into that, for that role? I, I think, think he like, had, like, lots of troubles, because he wanted to make his own movies, and, like, he, a lot of his own movies were, like, financed by, like, I don't know, like, arms dealers in like Europe or something. You know, it's like very shady. <laughs> um, I think like it's either F for fake or the other side of the wind, or it might've been chimes at midnight. Like the producer stole all of the like original film print and like wouldn't give it to Or, Like he, he just didn't, there were years that went by when Orson Welles like literally didn't have the film. Because oh the God. producer like stole it and was holding it <laughs> ransom. Um, dude, you should watch Citizen Kane like tonight. It's on HBO Max. I started watching it after I watched Mank, and it's really fun, man. Like the beginning is like old-timey, sort of like stylized, but pretty quickly it just becomes like the most entertaining. Like not only is it like artistically brilliant and like the shots and I mean you love cinematography there's so many really great camera tricks and angles in this movie. But apart from that, the acting and the writing is like, so like crackerjack, like whip snap. And it's like really fast and keeps you, um, keeps you interested.
2: Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, it's hard to tell people you haven't seen citizen Kane. It's like saying, like you haven't seen the wire. And everyone's just like, what? And it's like, there's no good way to tell people you haven't seen The Wire. And it's like, it's kind of like the same thing where it's like, it's not a very good way to tell people that you haven't seen Citizen Kane. I've seen a lot of works that referenced uh, yeah. Citizen Kane, Orson Welles. I've read uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay uh, mm-hmm. by Michael Shabon. And uh, in that book, one of the pivotal moments in the two main characters is when they go see Citizen Kane. It makes them realize, they're like oh, like the comics that were drawing, you can actually do this stuff. Like, whoa, this is amazing that like – this uh, this artist is doing this with film and uh, that inspires them. There's just like a lot of references to yeah. Orson Wells. I just never saw the main thing of it.
0: I feel like Ed in this episode talks about how like Citizen Kane like taught the audience how to watch movies in a way that it's like it uses so much like flashback and nonlinear storytelling that you know it seems like not a normal movie like people wouldn't understand it if it wasn't like a straight line but of course you understand it like this is how you tell a story that sort of jumps around in time um dude maybe a, maybe this is our patreon episode you need to watch citizen <laughs> kane like i it's yeah i mean you got to watch it you got it
2: yeah Uh oh yeah, I mean we gotta do the we gotta do the plug. I mean, like for those of you who don't know, we haven't plugged this in a while, but uh, (laughs) um we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash northern overexposure podcast. We put out something new every single month, always pertaining to something in northern exposure. And yeah, I'm sure many of our listeners have heard Citizen Kane and Maybe you would like to hear us talk about it in depth.
0: <laughs> I'm going to, yeah, it's it's a little far removed from Northern Exposure as a whole, but maybe we can tie it back to this episode. I don't know. I would love to make you watch that movie, but uh, we'll we'll figure it out. Um, regardless, you know, I'll, I'll find a way to make you watch Citizen Kane. Uh, <laughs> but you've, I guess you kind of have it, you said you're like familiar with it. You've seen other works that talk about it. Uh, I've read seen that parody like yeah. so many times on the ending. So with, you know, like yeah, you know no Rosebud, which we'll get to, I guess, but um, yeah, so you get the idea. Um, yeah. Going back to this scene when, when Ed uh, decides the theme of the film fest is going to be Orson Welles, Maurice says, Orson Welles has been dead since like 1985. Maurice wants uh, premiere films. He wants undiscovered talent. Um, but Ed reassures him, it's like, yeah, this is just like the theme, like the guiding principle. Of course, it will be like new premieres and undiscovered talent. It's just like, it's going to be sort of like guided by Orson Welles's works.
2: That's kind of odd that he's looking for undiscovered talent. Like he's wanting this to be more of like an indie thing. Yeah. Whereas like yeah. Orson Welles is literally one of the biggest film directors. He's going to get the biggest eyeballs.
0: Right. And like we got Peter Bogdanovich, not yet, but he's coming to town. Like that's huge for Sicily. Like,
2: Yeah. It's weird that he wants to be like, I want to make sure that it's like we're cultivating a culture where uh, young independent filmmakers are being shown. It's He didn't even know what Sundance was.
0: <laughs> yeah. Regardless, I have to say, you know, I think Ed is a pretty great visionary mind to have as like a Film Fest director. I already like this idea and I can see where it's where it's going. But of course, like we can't have a storyline without any conflict. So it's going to start... Unraveling soon, but let's put a pause on that and go to uh, back to Leonard. I keep wanting to say Graham Greene, but that's the name, that's the, name of the <laughs> actor. Back to Leonard. Uh, he's now, I guess, sort of like in the town hall in the church, and he's got a, a group of white folk, and he's uh, got a tape recorder, and he's like, you know, people are just coming up to his desk and telling him stories all of the stories that the white people tell are urban legends, urban myths. Like Maggie's got the story about um a lady with the beehive hairdo and there's like a nest of black widow spiders in the hairdo, but then like as soon as she says that, the lady behind her, the lady behind Maggie is like, "No, it was um it was maggots." Actually, I think Ma- Maggie says it was maggots and the lady said it was black widow spiders. Doesn't matter, but they all know this like urban legend, but it's just different. Uh, it's a different telling each time.
2: Right. They're always horrifying in uh, to, to various degrees. And Leonard does find this to be a common motif among all the things that they've been telling him. We'll, we'll get more into that later, but that's essentially what's happening in the scene. You can tell that Leonard uh, is a little bit visually disappointed in what he's hearing.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely disappointed. It's not clicking for him. He still, he still doesn't understand, I guess, what these stories are all about. Like he's surprised that Hauling tells a myth about Paul Bunyan, but this doesn't factor into his life. And he's surprised that there's all these, what does he say in this scene with the black widow spiders, this beehive story? He says, did the insects say anything or impart any wisdom? No, of course not. The, the lady just like, you know, went on with her life after that, I guess, uh, you know, he asks her like, what did the lady do afterwards? I don't know. It's like, she saw a doctor. She had like trauma. I I don't know, but yeah, that's about it for this scene. We'll we'll see what happens with Leonard as his story continues. Uh, we're going to do this crazy weaving thing where we jump back to Ed and Maggie. Maggie is delivering lots of cans of film, all Orson Welles films on 35 millimeter, would you say there's like 36 reels or something of Orson Welles' films?
2: Yeah, there's like a ridiculous amount of reels that they're bringing to Ed so that he can watch all of of his films. And he's ecstatic as he holds them. He's saying like, I'm touching something that Orson Welles himself might have touched. And Maggie talks about how like she loves the various tricks that he was employing like to visualize uh, certain aspects of their emotions. Like I think she references a dinner table getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, probably. I haven't seen the scene, but I can see it play out in my mind perfectly. Right. To be like, the conversation is going south. It's getting more tension, and like the the probably turns more into a wide shot as it grows, and then like suddenly, like Maggie is saying, they're miles and worlds apart.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you pictured it perfectly, even without seeing it. But you can you know you can understand how this idea is like uh, such great imagery from this scene. I have another bite. It's when Ed is talking about. Orson Welles as a magician. Boy, he was a magician, you know. Yeah. No, I mean a real magician, Maggie. He used to do tricks. Really? Yep. His whole concern was with how things could be made to look. Like sleight of hand, he didn't want to reproduce reality. He wanted to recreate it. I like that. He didn't want to reproduce reality. He wanted to recreate it. Um, This also reminds me of, I mean, just... You know, Orson Welles really was like, he did like magic tricks and parlor tricks and stuff. But uh, he's got a movie called F is for Fake, or maybe it's F for Fake, where it's kind of like really, he's sort of narrating it and presenting it as the movie is like happening. And he's, you know, doing these like magic tricks on screen. And then obviously there is movie magic where, you know, there are edits that make uh, impossible things happen on the screen through the edit, and um, I'm trying to remember, like this is such a crazy movie because it's like presented as a documentary and then it's like revealed that it's like not, or it's like, uh, you know, certain things in the documentary like were presented falsely. I don't know, it's wild. I can't really describe it. It's more of a trip for you to just watch it, but mm. another another recommend.
2: That's still a really interesting idea of what Orson Welles is trying to, trying to do and what Ed is saying in this clip. Is that like uh, whenever you're making live action films, or at least you, you know, back in the earlier days, you were confined by the limitations of uh, reality. So, like, there's no way that you can get like a 50 foot dinosaur to appear (laughs) unless you did some sweet perspective tricks on like a toy action figure. You know, you do something to play around with it. Nowadays, you can bend reality by doing CGI. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. Uh, It can, it's obviously a tool. And any tool can be implemented in a positive manner. I just think it's very interesting that like there's limitations to it. Whereas uh, in the medium of like animation, you don't have to do that. Your limitation is just your imagination of what you can think of. Whereas in in live action, oftentimes you have to think about like, well, how am I going to make this shot come to life? I can't simply will it to life. And Orson Welles, being a magician uh, is very clever in devising ways to bring it to life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Who's a great magician. Uh, The next scene is Ed watching Citizen Kane in the movie theater, and there's this great circular dolly that circles around Ed as he's watching Citizen Kane, and it's cool because the, you know, we actually see the film screening on the, you know, projected on the screen. We hear it and we see it, and it's an unbroken shot. So it like starts maybe on the screen and then goes to Ed and it's like circling around him and we'll see the screen again. And it's all happening, as I said, in one continuous shot, but it's happening like in a live, like forward motion. So like the characters on the screen are talking about, you know, like where do you study? What do you study in college? Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And and then we get like shots of Ed as well. Like the camera sort of like circles around Ed And it's all supposed to sort of like draw this idea out of Ed being unsure about his future. And like he's connecting to this scene where these characters on screen are talking about like what what they're going to be when they, you know, in their future.
2: Yeah, I always find that question to be really hilarious, not just to ask to uh, to children, but also to adults. Like full-fledged adults to be like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed laugh right there. But yeah, uh, what's happening in the scene is that it's obviously subtext. Uh, the people in the film are saying like, oh, lawyers, bankers, politicians. What do they? What do they know about life? Well, what do you want to be? I want to be a yachtsman. I want to do something that's fanciful. And uh, what I want to do. And it's a movie. and you know, it's probably you know, it was, you know probably before times of like existential. Uh, you know, but before like they were having existential fraught crises and all that. So I'm willing to cut them a lot of slack uh, for, for that answer.
0: Oh, you know what? My bad. That's not, that's actually not in Citizen Kane. I was like, what scene is this? Uh, that line, this scene is from, I think it's the movie he made right before Citizen Kane. Am I making this up or did he make it right after?
2: Uh, Magnificent Ambersons? The Magnificent Ambersons.
0: Did that come before or after Citizen Kane?
2: Uh, Magnificent Ambersons came out in 1942 uh, Yeah, it's after Citizen Kane came out Which was in 1941 uh, Magnificent Ambersons,
0: 1942 Right I, There's a crazy story with this movie I feel like maybe it was shot before Citizen Kane And then it didn't come out until I gotta look this up But I know like uh, the edit of Magnificent Ambersons That was released was like wildly re-edited From his original like script and uh he's sort of like disowned it i think has like subsequently been re-released as like a um like they like recut it i think also posthumously oh. but what's up
2: yeah it was uh it was re-edited by like he lost editing control It went to rko which is like this super old um yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> super old uh um uh, film production plays i'm pretty sure it turned into let me make sure i'm right on this yeah, it was. Its uh, its parent company was the RCA Corporation, Radio Corporation of America, which is um, headed by David Sarnoff, who was uh, really, really involved with the development of the television. Very famous between him and um, what's his name, Farnsworth. He was uh, apparently rightfully the honest creator of television. And then eventually, I'm pretty sure that RCA turned into like NBC later down. It's been a while since I've been educated on the history of media conglomerates. I, th- I think they're actually really fascinating. But yeah, RKO is <laughs> like super old uh, film company. Definitely, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, so – but that's that scene. He's watching Magnificent Ambersons and, you know, we, we get the idea that this is continually going to be part of Ed's storyline. What is he going to do with his life? Be a shaman? Be a filmmaker? Be a what? I don't know. You know, intercutting that with – Shelly, she's got another story for Leonard and she tells him about uh, another urban legend. um, Someone who like woke up in a like strange hotel room with like a scar on their stomach and they had their like kidney stolen. Leonard is just like continually surprised by these urban legends. And, um, you know, it's like, what's the purpose of this? And I think Shelly sort of like tells him, you know, basically like, the reason why this story is circulated is cause like, you know, you know, it's, it's a dangerous world out there. You can't like trust everybody. Like be careful where you go. You might get your kidney stolen. But I think that's just the, that's the idea of urban myths. Anyway, it's in a way it's like a scary story. It's telling a story, you know, to provoke fear, but also maybe like, there's like a sort of a desire for self preservation that goes into like why we like hearing these stories because, It hasn't happened to us. Like we're able to protect ourselves from these situations. And by hearing them, you know, we know better now, I guess. I don't know.
2: Yeah. uh, There's something, like you said, it's kind of like watching horror movies where you're like, oh, this is like really neat. Uh, Gets the spine tingling. There's a (laughs) sensation behind these urban myths that people love. It's kind of like the same thing where people love um, listening to murder podcast, like murder mystery podcast, true where they crime. hear about these serial yeah. killers, true crime ones. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it's just something really fascinating about it. Yeah. You know, strangely enough, people think that's like a very unique thing, like a unique personality trait, but it's like, <laughs> it's a very human trait. Like most people yeah. like
0: that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's like, yeah, I think it, I think it really ties into why we like urban myths and urban legends is also the same part of us that is. Uh, fascinated with these true crime stories.
2: Right. Well, that brings us into the next scene, which is going to be where Ed introduces Peter Bogdanovich to Maurice.
0: Peter Bogdanovich is in Sicily. The director, you know, they list off some of his credits. The Last Picture Show, Paper Moon. And now he's got this new film. I think, uh, according to the timeline here, it just came out in August of this year. Uh, The Thing Called Love, they even, like, suggest maybe they'll show that film at the Sicily Fest. And I think Ed's like, you know, Peter's big time. I, you know, he's not – I don't think – and Peter says something like uh, he's going to have to talk to Universal about that, like, doesn't know if they'd be able to show the film there. But, um, yeah, we're introducing Peter Bogdanovich. He's going to be, like, a keynote speaker or something because he actually knew Orson Welles and he wrote this whole book in conversation with Orson Wells. And if you watch The Other Side of the Wind, as I mentioned, like, it's – clear that Peter Bogdanovich, like he's playing a character, I want to say in that movie, I think he's playing a character who's like close friends with the director. So, you know, pretty much playing a similar situation of himself as he was to Orson Welles, perhaps. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I haven't read his book, so I don't know exactly their relationship, but seemed like a mentor. Uh, Orson Welles may be a mentor to him, but well, who knows? At least in this episode, he's going to be perhaps the keynote speaker at the Sicily Film Fest. And actually, I think Maurice is pretty excited to meet him at first and offers him some osso buco, which Peter turns down. I think he also offers him buffalo mozzarella. Turns out Peter Bogdanovich is a vegan. In the 90s, he's a vegan. Um, I think this is actually true. I think the actual, the real life Peter Bogdanovich is, is a vegan
2: oh okay yeah uh he's uh pitching all these interesting stories uh he's obviously a very well-traveled man right here but maurice doesn't care about any of that he's saying that he has all these people that are coming pretty soon and he needs something to grab their eyeballs He's saying like i need this to be done before winter you understand this ed like you have to get this done
0: yeah all of a sudden like uh maurice like turns a switch and just he feels like this film festival is going to take too long to get off the ground or something. I mean, we've got 36 reels of Orson Welles films. We've got a keynote speaker now with Peter Bogdanovich. Seems to me like things are falling into place, but uh, I I think as we'll see, Maurice does have a point because there is a lot of logistics that haven't been figured out. However, I'll still say, I think Ed is doing a really great job as like a creative director for this film fest. We just need like, We need more manpower here. People just, like, start organizing, as we'll see later, like, flyers and posters and things like that.
2: He's obviously competent at being uh, the visionary for this place. But in terms of, like, logistics, he obviously needed to be paired with another individual. And he's, like, what? Like, 21, 22 years old? Like, he's young? Like, you wouldn't entrust somebody to run the (laughs) entire— Like, you wouldn't entrust, like, a 50-year-old to run this thing by himself, you, you would separate this into like it'd be a committee. So it's kind of wild that Ed is taking on such a burden of responsibility right here. Uh, what I wanted to talk about though, before we get off this scene though, is the staging of it, because there's a lot of shots of lamps mm. in there uh, that are in the shots. Each time it goes to Peter or it goes to Ed and Maurice, there's always a lamp in the background of the shot right there.
0: Yeah. Again, uh, this lighting motif.
2: Yeah, definitely playing into that. But Anyway, uh, getting to the next scene, we're going to see Peter and Ed wandering through the forest. They're trying to make their way to the B&B. We talked about this last episode, probably talking about Ron and Eric's B&B right there. And Ed is just leading him through the forest. Like, it's obviously, there's no, like, path. (laughs) Just like, it's just wandering through this place.
0: Yeah, I think Peter Bogdanovich is like, are you sure we're going the right way? Like, they're literally just walking through wilderness. And Ed is like, no, of course it's just down this road. I mean, there's no road. It's like a, it's a path, as you said. There t- there's some pretty cool stuff in this scene. I mean, we Peter Bogdanovich shares a lot of cool stories in this episode. Like there's the story in the last scene of uh, the lady from Shanghai, which we don't need to get into. You can watch the episode. And Peter talks about, uh, or actually I think it's Ed. Ed is just like quoting from Peter's book on and Wells. Talking about how Orson's like, Peter, I hope you're not accusing me of inventing the ceiling, suggesting like you know low angle shots showing the ceiling for the first time or something in a movie. I don't know if that's true, but but yeah, low angle shots I guess were were something that Peter and Orson talked about in this book. But there's a really cool quote uh, that Ed actually Ed says it's his favorite quote in Peter's book. Orson says, "To function happily, I like to feel a little like Columbus." In every new scene, I want to discover America, and I don't want to hear about those damn Vikings. So I guess the meaning is that he wants to feel, he wants making a movie to feel like a discovery, like something fresh, something new, even if it is by no means the first time that this has ever happened. Like, it's not the first time we're photographing a scene of like a detective and a crime scene or, you know, whatever, these like tropes, but it should feel like discovering it for the first time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good philosophy. Originality is kind of overrated, and I think execution is more important. And that's I'm just speaking (laughs) for my own personal opinions right here. But I think the way in which you implement uh, these ideas are much more important than the ideas themselves.
0: Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, you've got to you've got to have your own signature on it. I mean, of course, a good story is also very key, but. In the end I think like we remember I don't know why is why is film such an auteur art form you know uh, it it just it just really is at this point I don't know if it was supposed to be or if that's how we shaped it to be uh it is really interesting that you bring
2: that up because in literature in novels I would wager like 9999 percent of the time it's written by one individual they have complete control over the entire thing Uh, Sure, you have editors and whatnot making sure that you're on the right path, but the ideas are pretty much within your own headspace and you're putting it out. Whereas when you're working in an audiovisual format, uh, film or television, and it doesn't matter what the medium of it is, you work with hundreds of people to ensure that it's coming up the one vision that you want. It's paradoxically both like a lot of things happening and also just one thing happening. Because it's like the director has the the singular vision, but underneath the director, there's like a whole little cogs that are working. Actors, DP, uh, set dressers, lighting, editor. That's just off the top of my head. There's obviously lots of little things. So like, I think that's what makes the director stand out even more because he has to weave in all of those smaller cogs into one cohesive uh, tapestry at the top.
0: Yeah. I think that's pretty well put. Yeah. I mean, you, you could say that film is a collaborative medium and it definitely is. Uh, it's it's the work of like a village to make a movie. But um, maybe there's a reason why so many films are viewed as like auteur works. There's, I don't know, maybe, again, maybe that's just our own like interpretation of this. Like we forced this on film as an art, but uh, I think you're right about that. Like a director is someone who can try to like cohesively mix all these other artists together to form one vision.
2: Right. I think there's a beauty to that as well, because I think that uh, writing like literature, like books, novels and comedy are very lonely things because oftentimes you're just by yourself and then you pump it out and it's also just by yourself Whereas in, like, uh, you know, plays and audiovisual formats that we talked about, you're with, with like, all these other different individuals just collaborating and mix and matching and trying to see what sticks to the wall. It's just less lonely.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, back in this scene, uh, before we leave it, you know, they're approaching this bed and breakfast. And towards the end of the scene, Peter asks Ed, why don't you make a movie? Like, it's clear we've been talking on this whole walk to the B&B through the moonlight. Like you're very inspired by movies. You seem to focus a lot on them and you love them and you know a lot about them. I think it's time for you to make a movie. Well, I mean, to be honest, Ed has made movies. We've seen Ed's movies. Like it's not like he hasn't made a movie, but I guess like a big feature film, maybe that's what they're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Cause later, like, you know, Ed, you know, Ed has like started scripts and like never finished them. That could be what we're hinting at here. But Ed has an excuse for Peter Bogdanovich. He says that he's a shaman, which I guess is like kind of true. Like he has this calling to be a shaman. But later in the episode, Ed even says like, I made that up. Like Ed's not a shaman. He's not a shaman yet. So why is he doing this? You know? Yeah, it's such a bummer.
2: Yeah. It's a very interesting idea that they're going to explore more. Uh, later in the episode, we'll get to that really soon. But what happens in the next scene is involving Ed and Maurice. Ed is having to pay a visit to Maurice. He wants to talk to him, and he's saying like, "I want you to start getting serious about this. Not only about this uh, film thing that I'm trying to get up, but also in your life." You're at, like, like supposedly at the stage of your life, you should be taking things more seriously. And this is an opportunity for you and I'm setting you up to succeed. And Ed is having presumably like uh, panic attacks about this. He's having to take pills that Dr. Fleischman gets him. And I really like the exchange that happens here. He takes these pills and Maurice goes like, no, for like, sorry, for like the stomach flu. He's like, ah, no, Dr. Fleischman gave this to me. Um, whenever I, I, I start like panicking a little bit, and Maurice says, like, panicking? Like, you haven't even done anything. And Ed goes, yeah, that's why I'm panicking.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's why I'm stressed. That's why I'm panicking. He's got these. <laughs> that's pretty great. But what else? they also talk about, like, War of the Worlds. Oh, he's like, he says, how old are you, Ed? And Ed says, like, 22, 23 or something. It's like, when Orson was 23, he had already done War of the Worlds. People were jumping off buildings and stuff like that. Of course, you've probably heard the story of like the world of worlds broadcast that, you know, people tuned in and thought it was actually happening. That's, I think that anecdote is pretty false or it's been like falsified at this point. Like it's been, it's an exaggerated story that I think newspapers just ran with. I think most people back in the day either like didn't even hear the broadcast or, you know, were smart enough to figure out that. It wasn't actually happening. Like this is a this is radio.
2: Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Because I had heard about the first yeah. part, but I didn't know that it was um disproven right there. And yeah, that's like a really common thing. Um, especially as you grow older and you're like uh like a creator or an artist, you you inevitably will compare yourself to others and be like, Holy crap, this 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 individual's already like pumped out such an amazing thing. Um and yeah, you. It's it's hard not to compare yourself there. I don't even have like a good positive <laughs> antidote about that because inevitably it happens. Like I, I know like plenty of people that are like else even, even younger than I am that have pumped out like amazing things that I praise, and I'm like, this is uh, honest to goodness great. I cannot believe they created this, and even um, you know, I have not created something like that. So. Yeah, it's something that just, like, sticks with you for the rest of your life. You just have to
0: come to terms with it. (laughs) Yeah, very true. Well, let's not beat around the bush. Maurice fires Ed in this scene. Ed is no longer the director of the film festival, whatever his position was. He's no longer attached. And in the following scene, Maurice brings Peter Bogdanovich some plane tickets, and he's like, you're going to fly out tomorrow. I don't know. I guess... So it's kind of unclear, like, did they just call this whole thing off? Is there no film festival? Or is Maurice just, like, taking it into his own hands?
2: I want to say he's taking it into his own hands is yeah. the way that I'm having. Because I don't think he would just upright cancel it. Because then you'd
0: yeah. really be screwed. But why would you send away Peter Bogdanovich? You got him in town. Keep him around. But I don't know. Because I, don't,
2: Cause I, I don't, think <laughs> what he's – it goes back into his original thing where he's, like, he wants to find, like – Right. In his mind, I'm guessing this is what's happening. He wants to find like flashy directors, and he thinks that like these old school, right, award winning people from like uh, Oscars and stuff like that, like BAFTA and all that, that, those aren't what like the common man wants to see. They want to go see whatever the equivalent of 1990s. I can't even, I don't know, I don't want to disparage any director because I feel like they're, they're doing something useful. you know,
0: they were talking about Spike Lee, uh, earlier yeah, in yeah, one yeah, something seasons. that's like really
2: really really fresh like yeah. really good toward there and so they're trying to grab one of those directors
0: you know i i didn't mention this earlier but peter bogdanovich is also he plays a character in the sopranos so this is not oh, really the, this is not the last time he's going to be working with david chase
2: but anyway uh, on the next scene that's going to follow after that we're going to see leonard at the brick obviously being displeased of where his research is taking him shelly you know, comes up to him and tells him like, hey, have you heard of this one? And Leonard's like, let me guess, like the car explodes or something like that. Just like, you know, something that's like terrible. And Ed comes into the scene and Ed talks to them about his problems that he's having with the film festival and being fired and the stress that comes with it. And Leonard confuses that with another one of those urban myths. He's like, (laughs) uh, you know, like his fried chicken turned out to be a rat. And Ed says, I'm not telling stories anymore. I'm talking about my life, like this is something that actually happened to me. I feel like I'm just using the title of shaman as an excuse for not making films. And he thinks that he's a fraud for doing so.
0: Yeah, he talks about like how he was hanging out with Peter Bogdanovich. It was like having a great time. And like one of his idols, one of his heroes, is like you should make a movie, Ed. And he told Peter, like, no, I can't do that. I'm a shaman. It's like, why did I say that? Uh, he's, he's saying this to, to Leonard and Shelley. He says, I, I say I'm a shaman, but I don't do it. I say I'm a filmmaker and I don't do that. Like, what am I doing? And I think that's, I kind of feel like that's the last line of the scene, but you know, that's the sort of the question that the scene asks for Ed. It's like, what, what am I doing? He needs to answer this question.
2: Right, and that's put on the back burner for just a little bit because we're going to go to the next scene, which is where Leonard's still at the bar, and he's playing <laughs> pool with Chris, and he Chris is pontificating about what Leonard is going through because to Leonard, he feels like this anthropological research experiment, it's not going the way he wants to. He's, he, seemingly white culture is not... Deriving value from stories, uh, things that we tell one another. He's saying, "They're like, there's no healing properties in these fables. They're simply here to scare each other." And Chris remarks about this whole whole thing about, uh, about nihilism, capitalism. baby. Yeah, Jesus, <laughs> he Dad. To shrug off the entire answer. I really like how Leonard responds back. He's like, "What does that have to do with anything? Like, what, is,
0: what do you mean?" Yeah, well, Chris is, I wrote down some buzzwords, Chris, uh, says, maybe the reason why we tell these urban myths is because we feel threatened in the wake of the industrial revolution. Mass production gave rise to capitalism, but it undermined the individual, which in turn killed God. And we as a society have filled that vacuum with fear and paranoia. Um, sure. I don't know, like, I don't know exactly what the examples are that he lists, but, Okay, that's that's a that's a perspective to take. I think it could make sense. Um, but yeah, Leonard's just like, what do you ta- how does this make any sense?
2: Yeah, it, it's a very blanket statement <laughs> yeah. and it's like blaming a monolith <laughs> and attributing problems to like wha- to like one simple <laughs> thing that make you feel better in my opinion. And Leonard says like, how does the rise of capitalism explain the one about the young woman in the Volkswagen? It's like, it's like, it it doesn't like, uh, you're simply misattributing a system for something in which a culture is lacking, which might be the answer, but probably definitely is not the only reason.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, we can sort of go to the next scene, which is back in the movie theater. Ed, no longer the director of the Sicily Film Fest, but he's still got these film prints, uh, at least, I don't know if it's for the time being or If he just owns them now, but, uh, he's watching Citizen Kane this time, actually Citizen Kane and Leonard walks in and he's talking with Ed. He's like, yeah, you've watched this movie a lot of times and yet you still want to watch it again. Why is that? I don't know. Does, does Ed say, I think Ed says like, I don't know if Ed says why, but I know, I do know that in the scene, Ed says that like, he's been feeling better. He doesn't really like need the pills as much anymore like when he watches the movie, it's great. And then like, but he's like, but then soon the movie's gonna be over and I'll still be like a wreck, you know, afterwards. From this, Leonard is sort of putting things together and decides like maybe this is what the healing stories are for white culture. Maybe movies are the white medicine is what he says. Movies are the stories in the white culture. Uh, He says, it seems to have cured you, Like, the movies had made him feel better. But of course, yeah, Ed does say, like, I still won't know what to do with my life after the movie ends. We get a pretty cool quote from Leonard. I've got a soundbite here. I'm really confused, Leonard. The path to our destination is not always a straight one, Ed. We go down the wrong road, we get lost, we turn back. Maybe it doesn't matter which road we embark on. Maybe what matters is that we embark Nobody in the movie ever learns what rosebud means, do they? No? Yeah, I like that. It's like, you know, the journey is the reason, you know, it's not necessarily the destination. And at least for Ed, that's like a good, it's probably the right thing to tell him right now. You know, don't worry so much about the end goal. Like it's important for you to just start doing your work, whatever, whatever path you feel drawn to, you know, that's. Something you should just go with, like, focus on.
2: Right. There's a lot of great things happening in this scene, in my opinion. So, like, the film itself that they're watching, they're remarking on how Orson Welles was obscuring the face of the individual making the plans. Mm-hmm. And you can't – it's darkened and you can't really see it. Again, playing into the aspect of light right here. And a film – correct me if I'm wrong, Late, it's essentially just something with light shining through it, right? Like it's just a celluloid film and you have light shines through it and then you're, it projects an image onto the screen.
0: Yeah. It's flashing light. Yeah. 24 times a second.
2: Right. And that's all it simply is. But to Ed, this is an illuminating aspect to him right there. And I think that's like a key part of uh, why they're having lots of shots of light in here. And I also think it's really important whenever Leonard says nobody in the movie learns what rosebud means, right? And what Leonard is saying here is that we interpret things by ourselves, and we decide the paths that we take, and all of the things that come with it. So essentially, if it looks blue to you, then anything can be blue, whether it's an apple or a rabbit. And the, I I got that that quote <laughs> from. Like, something that people wouldn't think about. I got it from a manga. Mm. And at first appearance, you wouldn't think that's where, like, a well of knowledge would come from. (laughs) But there's a lot of power in fictional worlds that can have a profound impact on our real world. And with Ed, instead of using movies as escapism, he can apply the lessons and morals found within and apply them to his life. And I think that's where Leonard is also connecting the dots to be Mm. like – You know, these people are using film, they're using an audiovisual aspect to deliver messages so that we can live our lives in a more positive manner. They don't use stories, but they use something very similar to stories. It doesn't matter what the medium is. It doesn't matter whether I got the lesson of interpreting things for myself from a play, a manga, a, a movie. It's important that you just get the lesson itself. So really, I don't think that we should be worrying about the dangers of like media consumption or anything like that, <laughs> but we should be empowered by what it can deliver upon us. And I think that's why this scene is really pleasant because there's two ideas going in here, Ed realizing that it's important to just take a leap of faith like Joel was doing and mm. Leonard realizing that like empowering fiction can come in all sorts of mediums. And it doesn't have to come from one thing. And it doesn't matter if other people consider it to be a lesser medium. If we think that rosebud means this thing, then more power to you.
0: Yeah, I love that. I, I really loved that line that Leonard says, nobody in the movie ever learns what rosebud means, do they? It's a perfect sort of like ending little note, like a question that really rings out in your head because it seems kind of non-sequitur to what they're talking about. Obviously, they're watching Citizen Kane, but it just like kind of really makes you question that. And I've been thinking about that since I watched uh, this episode. Like, what are are we talking about? I think you kind of really hit it there. And I also just wanted to also point out that Rosebud is the ending of the movie, but it's also the beginning of Citizen Kane. In the very beginning of the movie, uh, Charles Foster Kane, on his deathbed, his last word is rosebud. And uh, he's just this uh, magnificent, gigantic character that when he dies, like everyone in the world is like newspapers are all a buzz about it. And no one knows what rosebud means. Like everyone's like, what is, what, what, these are the dying words of this rich newspaper magnate. Like what, what could this mean? And so the plot of the movie is that this newspaper is like, we, like sending their journalists out like to interview people in his life and people that knew him. And they're like, we need to figure out what is Rosebud, what does it mean? And uh, similarly to Ed's plight and to the idea here is like, you know, they never get to their destination. I mean, I think us as an audience, when we watch it, we understand what it means, but none of the characters in the movie ever figures out what Rosebud means, but the journey of, of trying to figure out Uh, what these dying words are tells the entire story of the movie, which is the journey, Mm. which is like the way we embark.
2: Nice. That's a really nice way to wrap that into the plot (laughs) line with Ed and Leonard.
0: Yeah, I think, but I also think, you know, there's that's it's such a powerful question that can mean a lot too. I mean, I think that's how it applies to Citizen Kane and Ed, but I think just the idea too is, I don't know, just the question it raises in your mind. It's pretty good.
2: Yeah, I think it's good to like, you know, if Citizen Kane is going to be uh, the linchpin that sets him off, then let it be the linchpin. I don't think there's anything silly being (laughs) influenced by a work of art. I mean, obviously there's a problem if it like informs you of all your uh, life decisions. (laughs) But if this is the thing that's going to set Ed off into the path of being a filmmaker, then let him. Though I, I don't think he feels any shame in it at all because in the next scene, that we see, which is going to be the ending scene, is Ed finally returning back to the typewriter and he's got the beginnings of his script. And I just want to point out that when he's doing all this, there's lots of lamps in the shot. Mm. I think there's like two or three separate ones just in the background, just helping, uh, you know, be the light that guides him.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, what do, what do you think about all the light motif in this uh in this episode for you it's sort of like light shining and guiding and like illuminating his path perhaps or yeah
2: yeah definitely
0: yeah i like it yeah I, did, I didn't i didn't notice that at all but i think it's clear if you go back and look through the episode not only lamps but as you were saying shadow they talk about in the movie citizen kane like what is in light and what is in shadow and then also like the characters walking about and walking through you know these continuous shots and then Going into patches of darkness, things like that.
2: Yeah, I think they, uh, I, this is what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast episode, where I think the director was really bringing the script writer's words to life and imbuing, it, turning something two dimensional into three dimensional. Because, like, just as you were having a conversation about Orson Welles and all of his uh, groundbreaking ways to shoot a movie, they're also implementing them into this episode. Like, we talked about, there's like walk and talk shots. Uh, tracking shots that follow them from streets all the way into K-Bear um, rotating shots where you can see Ed when he's looking at the movie and you know lighting all the lighting tricks that are doing yeah. so they're really having fun with this idea
0: well before we leave Ed I want to read I want to read this little sneak peek of a script he's got here this is what it says on the on the page that he's typing fade in exterior main street day a young shaman Walks along the main street carrying small totems and pulling a child's sled. That's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty
2: sure that sled is uh that's a reference to Citizen Kane, yeah, right? Yeah
0: the yeah. Uh no spoilers, I guess, but yeah, there's some sleds in that movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, big big uh citizen Kane energy, big shaman energy here. We've seen a, a combination of the two. Uh, ed is ed is combining these to bring some sort of harmony into his uh to his psyche
2: yeah i mean i think it's very easy and probably i don't think it's bad a lot of people like to nitpick on this to be like oh man aspire uh, this individual is just writing about their life but like i mean where else are you going to draw life experiences from it's probably yeah, your own life exactly so like if you if you find that if you can spin this into a fascinating story then like more yeah, power, more power to, to you
0: yeah exactly like you're the only person who could do it. So if, if you think you can do it and it turns out like it, that's your story, you know? <laughs> All right, Charles, now is the time in our podcast to invite a guest onto the show. Typically someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before. Uh, this is our way of sort of expanding the reach of the show. And today, uh, Charles, I'm coming to you from the future, the, the past, I guess. I, I'm in person with our guest Unfortunately, I, I've decided to record this without you, Charles, please forgive me, but we've got Sam from the Subtextual podcast, and Subtextual is this podcast that I've been helping out with producing and engineering, recording for them. It's, uh, well, let's see, we've got Sam here, maybe she can describe the podcast for us.
1: Hey, Lee, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I'm a big fan of Lee and um, of the Northern Exposure podcast, although I'd never seen the show before. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say he's helping out. He's doing like a whole shit ton of work. Can I curse? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> we'll bleep sure. it out anyway. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so Subtextual, the podcast, is a, a queer film podcast that I co-host with my uh, good friend Lizzie, and we dive into the subtext, typically gay subtext, or overt gay text in film and movies, and we kind of hold up a lens to society to see like how representation in these movies reflect where we were typically in the past and then how we can do better in the future.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. They've got great chemistry. You've already heard Lizzie. If you listen to the podcast in the second season, Lizzie's episode was season two, episode two, The Big Kiss. So you can hear her, uh, though I've already talked to Lizzie and Sam. I really wanna get them on again later for a very special episode. But we've got Sam on today. Because I also wanted to sort of usher in, they've sort of just started subtextual. So go check them out on Apple everywhere, Podcasts, yes. podcast, Spotify, Spotify,
1: Apple, Google, wherever you get them. We're probably there.
0: Yeah. Somehow they like once you release a podcast, it it just goes everywhere. <laughs> it seems. But okay, today Northern Exposure. What do you think of this episode? I'm just going to pass it over to you now.
1: Yeah. So like I said, I didn't really know what to expect tonally from this show, and. It was like a pleasant surprise. I expected it to be I guess more eerie in tone, because um, I'm not super familiar, but it seems like there's some sort of underlying something happening in this town. But what I really enjoyed I mean none of the actors there are a few that I recognized a, a few, seldom few um the other ones i w- I had never seen before, but what I really appreciated was their line delivery was truly what you would hear in a small town. There's almost no rush. In any of the dialogue. Uh they take a lot of space between all of their words and um the dynamic between the townspeople I think is very um sincere.
0: Yeah. We're in season five, sort of well established. We've got we've got the townsfolk's uh relationships and uh yeah, fun vibe. I don't know. Yeah, some people have compared it to Twin Peaks, which yeah. has like more of an eerie vibe. So Uh-huh
1: maybe I, that's it. I feel like <laughs> I feel like this is, I mean, I don't know anything about this show. I don't know how long the seasons run or, like, what the crux, like, what this is all based off of. But it kind of seems like they're, like, maybe Or I love Buffy, but I'm like, are these people on the Hellmouth? Is there, like, radiation? Like, are Tremors about to, like, explode through this town with aliens? Like, it's it's almost too Twilight Zone. They're almost too pleasant. I think I've, I gathered that Ed is a principal character as well as um, Joel. And Joel kind of reminds me of of a Seinfeld character. And not just because he's from New York, which he mentions a lot, but uh, (laughs) because he's kind of this curmudgeon. And I imagine he's one of those characters that grows on you, similar to Seinfeld. But he kept, in this episode, doing this thing that was really annoying, um, where someone mentioned about being a firefighter like once, and then he was just like... (laughs) Everybody's trying to get me to be a firefighter. I, I can't be a firefighter. It's like reminiscent of that SNL skit where Kristen Wiig is like, I can't sing. Don't make me sing. I can't sing. And then she just starts singing out of nowhere. It's like he so clearly wants to be a firefighter. Um, but I think what I was focused on most in this episode, because I'm not a huge Orson Wells fan. Um, I have a film podcast and I don't like Orson Wells. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Even though there's a lot of subtext, I think, in Citizen Kane, I mean, Rosebud, (laughs) I say no more. But uh, what I really loved was the um, Native American character, Leonard. Um, He does a fantastic job in this episode, basically collecting these stories from white culture, as he says, like basically folklore. And I think it's a, I mean, I actually was like laughing out loud during those scenes because it's so funny with the way that like, White American culture hyperfixates on Native American culture and like almost mystifies it even further to kind of make it seem magical. And so when you turn that on its side with like white culture, <laughs> like there's one scene in particular that I loved where he goes where there, this white man is talking to him about Paul Bunyan. Yeah, and he goes, "How does this character's story impact your life? Are you aware of his influence on your daily activities?" <laughs> <laughs> and the man says i've gone for years without ever even thinking about him <laughs> i swear i had i had to stop it and write that down but um overall all the characters are really lovely but i did want to ask you a question so i'm glad yeah. you're on the mic um the woman who ran that firefighter like a volunteer firefighter force what's her character's name ruth ann i swear she's in Um, A Mary-Kate and Ashley movie? She is in one. Is she really? (laughs) Yeah, we've looked this
0: up because other guests have been like, what is she in? And it's happened a couple times to where we went through her entire filmography because it's kind of short. She hasn't done a lot of TV or movies, but she is in, is it How the West Was Fun or no?
1: It could very well be How the West Was Fun. That sounds like the
0: most fun one, but I don't know if it's the one.
1: Oh my God. You have to give me two seconds to confirm. Peg Phillips, yeah. Also in Seventh Heaven, huge Mm. deal for me. Yep, she was in How the West Was Fun. (laughs) That movie changed my goddamn life.
0: I haven't seen it.
1: I I know there's like other probably more famous people in this show, but I didn't give a (laughs) shit about them. Yes. (laughs) So overall, I I really like this episode. Um, It definitely uh, made me want to come back and watch some more. This seemed kind of like if I'm relating it to Buffy, you know, they have episodes where they call them like, monsters of the week, which Mm -hmm. are kind of like the throwaway episodes that don't contribute to the overall plot of this season. Um, This felt like that to me, but even so, like just the overall tone and relationships between these characters was really um, like sweet and endearing. So I think I definitely watched more.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear because we're kind of like in a weird lull in the fifth season. But I think this episode was like sort of a lift from a couple bad episodes that we just watched or in our opinion, ones that we didn't like that much. But uh, yeah, glad to hear that you enjoyed this episode. Okay, from here, Charles, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on Sam's thoughts.
2: All right. Now that is Lee and Sam's thoughts on the episode. And now for all the listeners, now you all know that Lee does the heavy lifting on every podcast. It's sort of like a Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak situation here, except I'm not nearly as talented as Steve Jobs and Lee just does all the work. I like that Sam mentioned that the show is very eerie in tone, and I think she's on to something right here, because Eerie and Whimsy are next-door neighbors to one another. With just like a slight shift in perspective, you can totally go between those two right there. And I know that there's a lot of similarities between the show and Twin Peaks, which is obviously much more stranger in presentation, but... I like that Sam picked up on that. I also really like that she mentioned that the firefighter plotline involving Joel and how it's really similar to that sketch where Christian Wig desperately wants to sing. Because in Bill Hader's first SNL monologue, he actually has Christian Wig guest starring in it. And in that monologue... She kind of pressures Bill into singing. And Bill's like, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to sing. They don't want to hear me sing right here. And Christian keeps pressuring him and saying, like, oh, no, it's what the crowd wants. Come on. And I, I actually think we have a clip of that where we can just show it.
1: Tonight's your night. You're going to wow the crowd. Really? No fear, because I'm here.
0: So Bill, just sing it loud.
1: Thank you, Kristen Wiig, thank you for calling me the end of this. This is a dream come true. I'm really killing it. Okay, stop, stop, stop. With love, yikes. <laughs> that was, that was really, really bad. I love you, but don't ever do that again.
2: And that's really similar to what's happening here, according to Sam. Sam brings up how funny it is that all these folklores that we have in our mind and how influential we think they are, when in reality, we don't think about them at all. And it sort of goes along with the theme of the episode, how, you know, movies sort of replace that, because there are some media that I think about every day. It even Sam says that Seventh Heaven changed my goddamn life. So there's definitely things that we think about that aren't old folktale like Paul Bunyan, but are still things that we think about every day and how impactful they can be. And like I mentioned previously, how these fictional worlds can have a profound effect on our real worlds. Sam felt that it was a one and done episode right here, and, you know, she's not entirely wrong. Lots of Northern exposure is kind of one and done ish. There's character growth, for sure, but it's not like there's like an overarching plot line. Well, especially not so yet for season five from what I can see. So she's not too far off in the mark right there. And that's going to be a wrap for this week's episode. Now, ordinarily, Lee would tee me up by asking what my thoughts are on the next episode, but Lee's not here, so I'm going to do it myself. It looks like the next episode is going to be called Heal Thyself, which, uh, I mean, Monty Python comes to mind you know, with that old language like thyself and stuff like that. I'm going to guess that, uh, let's go with Hauling. Let's say that Hauling finds something that makes him younger since, you know, he's growing older. So let's say he finds some sort of like healing salve and it reminds him of what being a youth is like. Let's go with that. All right, Lee, I'm going to see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Sam from the Subtextual Podcast for being our guest analyst. If you like the write-in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.